thank you for joining us for this next year turnaround restructuring and insolvency podcast series. We'll be exploring global issues that affect the world economy. I'm your host, Rebecca Harding, and I'll be joined by a selection of experts from around the world in firms that are all part of the Nexia International Network, and all of whom are leaders in turnaround, restructuring and insolvency. Nexia International is a leading global network of independent accounting and consulting firms. All of the experts appearing on this show can be contacted via the Nexia International website. Thank you. In today's podcast, we're joined by Scott Atkins. Scott is an internationally acclaimed industry leader in restructuring and insolvency, as well as risk, governance and complex litigation. He's based in Sydney. He was appointed Global Chair of Norton Rose Fulbright in 2023. He also serves as Global Co-Head of Financial Restructuring and Insolvency. He's the firm's Australian Chair and he's Head of the Australian Risk Advisory Practice. Scott is recognised for his leading experience in cross-border insolvency, acting on both inbound engagements in Australia and advising clients on outbound engagements in jurisdictions including the United States, the United Kingdom, the Cayman Islands, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Indonesia, Singapore and the Netherlands. He's also led capacity building, policy development and reconstruction projects across a broad range of countries, including developing economies, in order to unleash the economic potential of these nations. In Myanmar, Scott led a team which drafted a new insolvency and restructuring framework, culminating in the passage of Myanmar's insolvency law in February 2020. Scott serves as immediate past president of the Australian Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association and is now president of Insol International, the global restructuring and insolvency professional organisation with over 11,000 members. He's a global thought leader on novel and emerging issues such as the commercialisation and governance of outer space and the complexities arising from cryptocurrency and fintech. Right, Scott, hi. I'm looking out behind you and all I can see is sunshine. While I'm sitting here at minus six in the UK, I'm not at all jealous, mate. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, don't be, don't be, Rebecca. It's not as if we've always been like this for the summer, so it's just uh, a special treat for today. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me more about you. I mean, you, you've got an amazing career behind you. I have been stalking you extensively on online, so... <laughs> So tell me more about you from your points of view. Well, I, I feel like I've been practising now in restructuring and insolvency in one form or another for almost three decades, which is extraordinary to think about that. Um, you don't look old enough. <laughs> uh, well, I started my career in-house at a bank, and I think it was um, because of that that I developed a deep interest in restructuring and insolvency. Mm-hmm. And uh, from about 2008-9, which by coincidence, um, aligned with the first iteration, I guess, of of contemporary financial collapses, the global financial crisis, as we called it. I I started uh, studying cross-border insolvency and restructuring, and I did that through Insol International. And it sort of sparked two things that stay with me to this day. One is a very deep interest in cross-border restructuring and insolvency, and I've practised across many different jurisdictions around the globe, and also, and hopefully relevantly for our listeners, a very deep interest in the work of Insol International. And uh, so in 2008-2009, when I undertook that study, I then became a fellow of Insol International, and I'm very happy to talk ad nauseum about, about why people who are members of Insol should think about 
becoming a fellow. Uh, and since then, the work in that area has gone into directions that I never thought would have been possible. So we undertook a major piece of work in Myanmar, helping that country uplift yeah. its restructuring and insolvency laws. So they have one of the newest systems of restructuring and insolvency yes, law in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're doing similar work now in Armenia. And uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be making my first trip to Bhutan to help that country also undertake a similar piece of work. I've worked in Brunei, Indonesia, um, and the little-known uh, Republic of Nauru, one of the smallest in the world, as well as in mainstream jurisdictions as well that are much more widely known to our listeners. So it, it is amazing when I look back at the evolution of that career with both the focus on cross-border study but also the work within Seoul International, it really has taken me into dimensions that I would never have imagined when I think about what I really wanted to do, which was to be a veterinary surgeon. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, I could have done with you that. I've got four dogs. <laughs> oh, there you go. So I might come back to that one day. Yeah, but um, I mean, just as a summary, if somebody wanted to, who wasn't a member of Insol and wanted to join, what what would be sort of the couple of key things that they would get from it? Just just so that our listeners know. Well, well, the first thing would be the the opportunity or the reality of connecting with members across the globe. Um, without going into sort of sales mode about Insol, I think it really sells itself. But there's nearly eleven thousand members now. And we draw our members from 104 countries, and that's continuing to grow. I say it's continuing to grow because we've had people sign up just this year from countries that we've not previously drawn members from. And uh, if you just look at the London conference that we had in June last year, we had people from 54 countries. That's amazing. And to put that in perspective, it, it was extraordinary yeah. because if you put it in perspective, 920 people coming together, very much still on the cusp of getting comfortable again, hanging out with other humans in person, uh, were warmly embracing one another and incredibly intensely networking. And it just struck me that, to your point about what is it that's special about Insol, it is the global connectivity. It's about like-minded people, not necessarily all lawyers and accountants as financiers, judges, academics, legislators, right. all different people involved. A lot of younger members increasingly are being drawn to the association um, and from across the globe. So for anybody who has an interest in practising a profession that has global connectivity, it's a great way to do exactly that. And I think being in a professional member association that's been around now for over 40 years, we can say over 40 years, because London was, in fact, also the 40th anniversary of Insol's foundation. We're now edging toward our 41st year of existence. That's a lot of runs on the board. So there's a lot on offer. There are an amazing number of programs. We can talk about these later, but there are an amazing number of programs, different ways to connect. Uh, and for those that do have particular ambition, such as what I talked about before in relation to further study, that's on offer as well. So for me, it's an amazing organisation and one that I feel very naturally investing all of my discretionary time in. And I feel very proud to lead it as the president. 
Yeah, well, you come across as really proud of it and everything you've achieved there. I mean, you've obviously had a fantastic time being involved. And I mean, it's great that you've got to the 40th anniversary because a lot of professional associations kind of dip off after a while. So, um, you know, it's it's fantastic you kept going at that sort of level. And I mean, you were very brave and did the one thing that everybody dreads, which is launch a strategic plan <laughs> at the conference in June, didn't you? Nearly drives people to grey hair and <laughs> trying to get everyone to yeah. agree. Because it's always hard with such a diverse audience isn't it to get everyone to agree to a plan to go forward so what did you get from your strategic plan and what is the vision going forward well if I can just go a a tiny bit back so Rebecca one of the reasons why we were so committed to doing this is that in 2016 2017 we did something similar we launched a plan through to 2021 and so as we got into 2021 2022 we thought Obviously, we need to have a plan that takes the association further forward. And just as the rest of the world was disrupted, so was Insol in its operations during the pandemic period. And that led us to frame our strategic plan through to 2030 around reimagining Insol, thinking about, well, what will Insol look like into the future? It would be naive and, in fact, a major shortcoming for any association or for any organisation or business to think that certainly after that globally disruptive experience that you could just keep doing the same thing and expect to be successful. So it was a great pause point for us. And so that's exactly what we did. We went out to our members, had a consultation process and framed our thinking around this notion of let's reimagine in Seoul through to 2030. And what came through very clearly was, I guess, a sense of the major shifts that were happening across the globe at that point, the diversity drive in the restructuring and insolvency I'll call it industry, but it's really a profession broadly, is huge. We've got younger members. We have far more women coming into the profession now than ever before. And I've already mentioned the diversity of geography as well. So this diversification of what we do is huge. Uh, We also realise that, I guess, having been away from one another, people wanted to re-engage and reconnect. And that really drove a focus around networking and opportunities to build businesses together. And then linked to that was just expanding our reach into different systems and different processes and understanding more about the diversity of the different legal systems and restructuring processes that occur across the globe. And then, of course, having been disrupted by the pandemic, it's not the only form of disruption that affects business and industry. We've we've long had technological disruption. I think we're probably now at a tipping point where we see the real enlivening of AI impacts across the way that we do things in business and more broadly. So that was starting to feed into the feedback. And then finally, this concept of using all of the different systems and structures within InSol to build more connection and more connected tissue within the organisation. So, for instance, uh, we heard more and more that our members wanted to connect with financiers who were members. We heard that our members wanted to do more with the academic cohort. They wanted to establish new groups that were focused on special interest areas such as asset tracing and recovery. They were very curious about how Insult could support through technology. And so we came up with four new pillars and these pillars, Rebecca, sit at the heart of our global strategy. And the first is just having a bold 
global mindset, realising that as an organisation, people want that diversity, they want that connectivity and they want reach across the globe and they look to Insol to be able to create the experience and the opportunity to engage and to connect in that way and ultimately that goes um, squarely into networking opportunities but more broadly than that as well. Uh, the other uh, one of the other pillars that really started to emerge was one built around what ultimately has manifested in the establishment of the Insol think tank. So our members again are looking to Insol to help them navigate emerging issues not just in their own market but more broadly. Uh, ESG has clearly been spoken about um, as a universally globally significant issue and again members for instance are saying to Insol can you help us understand what is the opportunity for a restructuring professional in dealing with energy transition and climate change and how can our skill set be relevant in the way that businesses or in restructuring situations that's called upon and is deployed. So this notion of Insol as a provider of education, learning, understanding and insight. Um, the third was very much anchored around partnerships, much deeper partnerships, both with existing uh, members and stakeholders, but more broadly. So, for example, Insol has a very deep relationship with the World Bank, with the Asian Development Bank, with the IMF, with UNCTRAL, and a number of global organisations that are very, very significant in the role that they play in the restructuring insolvency constellation. And we were hearing from our members again that don't just anchor what we do within our own association, but can you please make connections so that I can understand what is the World Bank's perspective or stance on this particular issue? And in the last week, for instance, we've seen the World Bank give its updated expectations around um, a global economic performance. So our members were saying, you've got the capacity uh, to connect us more broadly and bring those insights to us. So please build out those deeper partnerships as well. And so that was the third pillar. And then the final was, so a lot of that is leading in our community. The final was leading the association itself. And we got a lot of encouragement from members to continue to invest in the services that we deliver, to build out our education programs, to build out our special interest groups, to continue to establish some of the anchor pillars that the association is famous for. I've already mentioned the judiciary and the academics as well, but we also reach into uh, regulators, we reach into mediators. Um, I've mentioned the financiers and on and on the list goes. So again, we were hearing from our members that they wanted us to keep investing, especially across those specific areas that are unique. Um, for instance, there are not many organisations that could boast a group of nearly 100 insolvency and uh, restructuring judges who are happy to come together anywhere in the world and share their insights and learn from one another as well. So they're the four pillars. We're now building them out. We we moved pretty fast to develop that strategy, to launch it in London uh, and, and certainly over 2023 and continuing. We're working very hard to start to put some meet on the bones and to develop some initiatives. And I'm looking forward to giving an update on how we're progressing at the InSoul Tokyo conference, which is in September. Nice. And Tokyo would be exciting to go to as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested in what you were saying about uh, sort of thought leadership through your sort of hub um, and uh, looking ahead, which obviously, you know, you've been doing that as part of your strategic planning. Um, we've done for next year, 
um, quite a few podcasts about the economy globally. And I would be really interesting to hear where you see the economy going in 2023. I think everybody wants that crystal ball at the moment to be able to anticipate where on earth the world's going. So what are your views on that? Well, you know, the the crystal ball uh, has been dusted off a few times. Um, I've got a couple of insights around that, Rebecca, to share. The first would be this very interesting notion that's crept into the to the language that we use now in talking about the polycrisis. Um, I do not remember who coined the concept of polycrisis, but it's this notion that not unlike when we had the global financial crisis, you can have the intersection of a number of different events at one time, which creates a scale of challenge that's probably, it's fair to say, uh, unprecedented. And, and I think that's the hallmark of what we're seeing in the period ahead. The first thing, and I think it's the headline that we talk about a lot, it's global economic growth. And I mentioned very briefly before that the World Bank has recently uh, revisited and reassessed its projections for the year forward, and they're pretty low. I mean, they're talking about growth of perhaps just 1.7% for the year ahead, and that's down from expectations that by this stage in the economic cycle, we might be growing at closer to 5.2 and upwards of 5%. So it has come down significantly. With that global economic growth coming off all of the other um, intensifying factors are at, are at play at the same time. So globally, we're seeing inflationary pressure and there's no suggestion of that subsiding anytime soon. Sure, we all look at the data as it comes out in different economies on a monthly basis and there are slight variations, but persistent inflation is having a major impact upon consumer spending and that consumer spending being so depressed has had a major impact upon business performance. Uh, then, of course, on top of that, we've seen increasing interest rates, again, almost globally. Uh, so inflation and interest rate increases together, again, have probably worked in the same way. They're certainly depressing business confidence and consumer spending habits post the Christmas holiday boom time, when normally retail certainly experiences a peak, will start to come off. And the predictions are that that'll come off fairly rapidly as we start to move through the year. The persistent supply chain problems that have been spoken about extensively that were the hallmark of the pandemic haven't been solved uh, as rapidly as people might have expected. And at the same time, the very interesting trend that's emerging, and I don't know how concrete the data is, so perhaps it's more anecdotal at this stage than uh, than being real and tangible, but regionalisation is the emerging theme as a reaction to that. So rather than relying upon international supply chains, you see regionalisation, and again, that's having a negative disruptive impact on the way that certainly globally um, structured businesses are performing as well. The geopolitical tensions that everyone is familiar with don't seem to be subsiding, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. The intensity uh, of the issues in the Ukraine in particular are having ongoing and persistent impacts, and that's certainly having a negative economic um, an immediate economic impact, uh, certainly in Europe and in economies more broadly. And of course, it's having a trickle-down effect in, in many different ways. I mean, for instance, pressure then on the supply of food and the cost of food provision is perhaps not something that would immediately have come to mind, but the disruption in the normal supply 
of agricultural products has been one of the uh, byproducts of of that particular impact. So where this all leads us is, I think, overall much, much tighter monetary conditions for businesses. We've seen perhaps uh, stresses and strains coming into some sectors of the economy and the ones that already, if you were to try to generalise across the globe where there's been a significant impact, the construction industry has suffered substantially. I think a lot of that is to do with the supply chain issues that I've touched upon. We've seen very mixed results with retail and, in fact, some of the major restructurings have occurred in the retail industry. Of course, many retailers successfully either moved online or increased their online delivery, but not all were successful in doing that and not all were able to access the capital that they needed. And then in the energy industry, the the renewable space is especially interesting because it needs a huge amount of capital and access to capital has been challenging, uh, particularly in that sector. And so a number of renewable projects have suffered the strains of this sort of polycrisis impact as well. So overall, I I think if you were to project forward, these trends are considered to be persistent and likely to occur perhaps with greater intensity for the year ahead. Last week I was just in Dubai at the Insole International Conference in Dubai, and it's always very interesting to speak to practitioners firsthand and to get their insights. And while in that particular region, I think it's fair to say things are performing better than in some others. When colleagues talk about, though, their counterparts in other countries, especially in the offshore jurisdictions, in the US, in the UK, in some parts of Europe, uh, the impact of the economic downturn is being felt and the intensity of workloads is increasing. And I think that's as good a readout as any that you'll get as to what's likely to continue to happen. Everyone seems to be a lot busier and that seems to have happened pretty quickly. So with this kind of disruption, it always ends up being two different things. You get the debt and insolvency because businesses aren't coping, but there's also opportunities there for restructuring if businesses move quickly enough. So what do you see as the balance between those two at the moment? How do you think businesses are coping? Yeah, it's it's a great question. There's some great commentary around at the moment that uh, analyses businesses that are going into this economic downturn with a strategy of cost-cutting versus those that go into it with a degree of calculated risk-taking and look for the opportunity, as as you've identified. Uh, How that ultimately plays out, I guess, is a business-by-business consideration, but there are incredible opportunities to continue to transform businesses in this particular cycle, And, and I guess that's where I see some of the opportunity. So to be a bit more granular about that, in 2019, let's say 2019 to 2022, the focus on climate change and energy transition it was intense. Um, of course, understandably, because of the realisation that we need different outcomes in terms of climate and we need more renewable energy as we move away from fossil fuel dependent energy supply. What's coming on stream now, and I think this is where opportunity starts to surface, the focus has been around biodiversity. And to your earlier point about what might be ahead, and and one of the things I identified was the supply chain, a lot of businesses are now going to have to reassess their supply chain yet again 
from the perspective of the impacts that they have in running their businesses and supplying their products on biodiversity. And the first time I raised this, probably last October, with a colleague, I sort of got the response, well, what does that really mean? And the example given to me fairly compellingly by somebody who's a genuine expert um, in the area rather than me is, well, if you're a manufacturer of bread, I guess a baker, but I'm talking more really about it at commercial scale, the question for you will be, well, in the production of that loaf of bread, how many insects might have been impacted And are you now assessing and reassessing your supply chain to take into account biodiversity and negative nature impacts as well? So uh, when you think about opportunity, what I'm constantly reminded of is the skill set of restructuring professionals uh, in the broadest understanding of it, whether they're lawyers, accountants, financiers, capital providers, investors, academics, any, any aspect of it, they have an incredible skill set because they've typically had to deal with challenging and confronting problems that they've not necessarily had the luxury of time to think through. They need to react to them in real time. They need to be creative because often I think restructuring professionals are dealt dealt up the most wicked problems that you can imagine. They don't always have perfect data. They don't have perfect information and perfect records, and so they need to make decisions on the run. So I guess to to your particular point about what where are the opportunities, I think they're vast. I've given one example, which is about the transition and change that's likely to come as a consequence of realising that we need to focus on biodiversity. But I think it's the skill set and the capability of restructuring professionals, first and foremost, that have a huge role to play in helping businesses look at the dimensions of problems and business challenges very differently to the way that they might do them themselves. And I guess the corollary of that is, as restructuring professionals, none of us ever would have commenced our careers or embarked upon our practice thinking that in 2022 we might be talking about artificial intelligence and what that means, or in 2023 we could be talking about biodiversity and I don't even know what we'll be talking about in 2024. But it goes to the point that I think we have massive capacity for adaptability, and so therefore we should equally be thinking about how can we go and help our clients or how can we help businesses when we're working alongside of them, whether it's to embark upon a restructure or whether it's to reimagine their business, how can we deploy our ability and our skill set to help them achieve their strategic objectives or to recast their business, taking into account all of the different data points that we might have collected along the way. Um, So I I take a much broader and diverse perspective on opportunity. Uh, There will be investors out there that are far better equipped, Rebecca, than I am to identify where the potential financial upside is in a particular investment or where the money should be placed. Um, But I think as professionals, we have this amazingly broad peripheral vision and we can all look to those opportunities and find ways that we can take ideas and thinking to our clients and help them take their business forward. Now, as somebody that I think does look a long way ahead, you've um, been interested in the whole area of commercialisation of outer space, which I was really interested to see. Um, So I have to ask you the question, is it Star Wars or Star Trek? Which are you? Um, (laughs) You've got to get the important stuff done first. (laughs) Well, I I will say Star Wars. I will say Star Wars. When I was in uh, Dubai last week, I met with my 
colleagues in the office there and uh, they immediately revealed that they were mostly Star Trek oriented. Oh, so, they all dress up at the weekend, don't they? <laughs> so it's a real issue. You are right. I mean, we must get this settled from the start. <laughs> so tell me about that. I mean, what have you been doing in that area? It's fascinating. Well, I like a lot of things, I probably stumbled into the considerations of issues about space not quite accidentally, but when I took on the Insol presidency, I wanted to try and move us into a new frontier. Uh, I mean, as I mentioned before, Insol's been around for 40 years and I wanted to try and stretch our thinking, stretch our horizon, stretch the boundaries. And I wondered almost rhetorically, what would we do if we had to restructure something in outer space? And I started looking at that and discovered, well, funnily enough, there are some old frameworks and some treaties and some international instruments from the 50s and 60s that give some sort of sense of commercial issues in outer space. But I realised that beyond that, there's almost nothing. And then, of course, when you look at the metrics, it's eye-popping. So the space industry at the moment is about US $350 billion dollars. And they say that by 2040, the space industry in terms of its commercialisation will be in the order of US a trillion. Now, I think in the way that things keep super accelerating, and if you look at just some of the more um, exotic and interesting people that are investing in space, it's the private sector and the commercial sector that are now outstripping the amount of investment more so than government. Yes. Whereas it always used to be the other way around. And so then with that, you've got commercial risk-taking. Uh, a lot of these space endeavours are start-up in their nature and they're underwritten sometimes by venture capitalists. Uh, and, of course, we're in a frontier in, in a domain which really is still yet to be fully understood. At the same time, interestingly, the pace and the acceleration of that commercialisation is happening at an extraordinary rate. And if you take the satellite metric, there's about a 1,000 satellites already launched by one particular commercial operator, but the ambition is to get 10,000 into space relatively quickly, low-orbiting satellites to provide telecommunication services. Already there are issues developing around collisions in space as a consequence of the space junk, which is having cataclysmic impacts upon some other space assets and so there are space disputes developing and there have already been at least four restructurings of satellites um, or at least uh, enterprises that are in the business of manufacturing and launching satellites. So as it turns out, and like a lot of these issues, when you start to dig into the data and the commercial metrics, it, stri it strikes me now and it certainly struck me when I started looking at this that the space sector is probably the one where more practitioners into the future are going to be needed for their capability um, than a lot of other sectors that we necessarily work in. Uh, and the ambition, as we see almost monthly now, there's a country somewhere announcing uh, an investment in space activities or in launching a particular initiative, and I think that's just going to continue exponentially. So it struck me that we needed to start having that conversation within uh, Insol International. And the first time I mentioned it, uh, I got some curious responses. 
but now, just as you've expressed a level of interest in it, it is quite fascinating. A, a broad base of people, and not just because I raised it, but a broad pa- base of people are watching what is happening in the commercial space sector and the massive amounts of investment and the massive amounts of capital that it's attracting, and they can see that they need to uh, become familiar with the issues in that area, just as everybody had to become familiar with the issues in the cryptocurrency space not all that long ago. So while at the moment space is not mainstream, I can see um, a significant role for the intersection of uh, restructuring and uh, related issues in the space sector. But it's interesting that you, because with these things, you find that the commercial side races ahead, and then you've got the legal side and all the the sort of all the structure that you need to make it safe and make it work has to follow up behind. Do you feel that there are sort of, I mean, this is obviously an area where the law is going to have to look at it and catch up. What are the other areas of sort of uh, restructuring insolvency law reform that you can envisage having to be brought in over the next few years? Yeah. Do you, and do you mean by that, Rebecca, more broadly, not just necessarily in the space? Yes, not just space, but I mean, touch on space, but then what else? There must be other areas out there that must need. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one one area, and this is, I think this is globally now a priority. In the, in the lead up to the pandemic, which is just a coincidence as to timing, just to sort of put it in terms of sequencing, there had become a realisation that in most countries the insolvency and restructuring system wasn't necessarily fit for the nature of the economy or the businesses in that economy. And specifically, a lot of countries had advanced and well-developed insolvency laws, but they were not fit for the business profile and in particular the micro and small to medium-sized enterprises that operate and are the the really the composition of the output that creates the GDP in most countries. Uh, Myanmar is one example. So if I just talk about that briefly, uh, about 96, 97% of that country's GDP comes from sole practitioners and small businesses of less than six people. And it had a 100-year-old bankruptcy law based on old English law and old Indian uh, Indian bankruptcy law as well. And it had not been modernised at all during that period. But of course, those laws which provided for liquidation and schemes of arrangement and winding up were not really fit for how do you deal with a small business operator who might have one piece of equipment and who really needs to be kept operating while they go through a reorganisation of their of their business in the event of some sort of financial distress. So not quite by coincidence, because a number of global agencies, including also Child the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the IMF, started talking very clearly about the critical importance of modernising insolvency systems to support micro and small to medium-sized enterprises. And so to track forward what we've seen since about 2016, 17, 18, certainly through the pandemic period, is an extraordinary level of growth in insolvency law reform and restructuring law reform across now about 150 countries. So the World Bank and uh, Insol have been tracking the countries that have been undertaking insolvency and restructuring law reform. And at the heart of nearly every single one of those reforms sits a modernisation process to adapt 
the legal system in country to deal with uh, different sized enterprises. And this might seem obvious and commonsensical, but funnily enough, it's just been one of the greatest shortcomings of insolvency and bankruptcy systems globally. But absolutely is now pretty much at the top of the list of every regulator's set of priorities in modernising their insolvency systems. And the, the final point I guess I would make around that is what we saw during the pandemic, which was very interesting, uh, again, a similar number of countries made immediate moves to put in place some economic policy, sort of short-term solutions to stave off the worst impacts of the pandemic and potential negative impact on business performance. And then once they caught their breath, they then started looking at ways that they could keep the best of some of those policies in place and adapt their insolvency laws to be better equipped to respond to exactly what businesses needed. For example, moratoria, so that there was a standstill in the event of a particular event happening so that you couldn't go and wind up a business just because it couldn't repay its debt or you had to establish that the reason for it not being able to repay its debt was for a reason other than the pandemic. Um, other innovations, including greater control for debtors, uh, greater flexibility in business rescue planning, less focus on formal insolvency and liquidation processes and more and more opportunities to try and try and do out-of-court workouts. And so what we've now seen as a result of that sort of disruptive period as well is modernisation of insolvency and restructuring laws at scale across the globe, especially to try to help small businesses more successfully work through financial distress. And I don't think anybody would have expected that as one of the outcomes um, of the pandemic. So it, I would put that in the bucket of the law of unintended consequences, but an incredibly positive development to help businesses have the greatest chance possible of restructuring and surviving. Scott, that's been fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me this morning. I'm sure everybody's found that really helpful and really useful. So if people want to get hold of you, where should they come to you, to the website, to Norton Rose um, in Sydney or, or your email or LinkedIn? Where's the best place? They, they will, in any number of places, uh, LinkedIn or the website. So uh, I can certainly be found on the Norton Rose Fulbright website. I can even be found on the Insole International website, um, but I'm very happy if people wish to get in touch. Um, I'm only too happy uh, to be connected. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to speak today, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Nexia Turnaround Restructuring and Insolvency Business Group. The group was formed to bring together financial, legal and operational expertise from across the Nexia network to support global clients and international business at times of operational challenges and financial distress. If you want to get in touch with any of our speakers, then please click the link accompanying this podcast or visit the Nexia website. All views expressed in this podcast are individual opinions and do not constitute professional advice. You're advised to seek professional advice if you want to see how an issue applies to your own situation.